Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Marking a year of this pandemic has been pretty tough. So much heartache. Then more grim news about shootings, violence against Asian American women that hits home for a lot of us. Hundreds stopped traffic in Carlsbad with the goal of stopping something else. Their message? Enough is enough. Demonstrators are demanding an end to violence against Asians. Most of those killings in the Georgia shootings were Asian women, and it all comes at a time of increased attacks on Asians and Asian Americans across the U.S. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on the California Report magazine, we'll hear how what happened in Atlanta is sparking conversations among Korean American teens in L.A., made me feel so weird and uncomfortable because I felt like I was just being sexualized for the fact that I was Asian. And in the midst of all the terrible violence, a spark of hope. More of us are getting the vaccine, like my parents. Hi, guys. My kids and I got to hug them after nearly a year. That's what life feels like these days. So much up and down, highs and lows. More Californians are getting vaccinated, but others are still dealing with lingering effects from COVID. Sometimes months after getting sick, people still have strained breathing, weakness, fatigue, depression. Our producer, Amanda Font, met a man recently who's trying to help. He's not a doctor, but he's got an impressive resume. first one I really started working with uh, was the 49ers, Jerry. As in Hall of Famer Jerry Rice. Derrick Dees, Jesse Sapolo, a lot of the offense and defensive players. Harvey Shields has been working with professional athletes for years. San Francisco Giants players like Barry Bonds and Willie McCovey. Barry Bonds stands alone. U.S. Olympic ski team gold medalist Peekaboo Street. But his clients also include the former king of Tonga and Costco warehouse workers. Because Harvey is not the guy you call in if you're trying to bulk up. What I do is not a personal trainer. Uh, my, My title is a corrective exercise specialist. He tries to prevent injuries by watching how people move, their posture, and making adjustments. And if they do end up hurt, he's there to help them recover. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, people close to Harvey started to get sick. I haven't had it myself. I've had friends of mine, and I think that also uh, affected me. I had friends of mine that was in Mississippi that died from the COVID. Then he started getting calls from clients struggling with COVID symptoms that just wouldn't go away. And you're going to take on staff. Come back up to here, take your hand out. They asked me to 
to see what I could do to help him. Then I started helping. I said, ha ha, this is something that will work. And when you bring your arm down, you want to deep breathe with it. Ready? He started doing online sessions from his home in Menlo Park. He charges clients based on their needs and how much time he spends with them. I came up with a different approach and deep breathing. Some of the people that I've been working with, you know, they're still having these residuals after six months after having it, initial having the COVID. And bring it down and relax. So what did you feel when you was doing that? My shoulder feels better, feels looser, and my chest is warm and stretched. Exactly. So you can feel it more. You're feeling now opening it up, right? I had probably almost every symptom that there was. The worst symptoms for me was a fever, a constant fever that would just never go away. Joni Girado has been a preschool teacher for 32 years, even during the pandemic. She says she wasn't super worried about working with kids, but in mid-December, she got COVID and it hit her hard. It's like there's a band around your chest and it's just sucking in your lungs. She says things were pretty touch and go for a while. Joni called the emergency room a few times when she was really struggling to breathe. My oxygen levels had deteriorated. I think I was, I think my lowest was 91, 92. Um, They say to come in around 90. But her 17-year-old daughter, Hannah, also had COVID. And she says she didn't want to leave her alone, so she toughed it out. With the constant fever and aches, she was hardly able to sleep. I, I got a call from Harvey on a Saturday night. It was, it was probably the sixth night. Joni met Harvey about 10 years ago when his daughter was enrolled in her preschool in Menlo Park. She's since moved to Folsom, but the two are still in touch. When he found out she was sick, he called her wanting to help. And I was like, no, you can call me tomorrow. Like, I really don't feel good. And he was like, nope, get up. Harvey convinced her to get onto her computer so he could teach her some exercises to help open up her lungs. And Joni says she felt better. So what you do, you want to, but it's a slow. It was kind of amazing. My my oxygen level went back up. I think it was about 95, 96 after like 20 minutes. And that night was the first night that I actually like slept. Up to here, you're going to take it out slowly here. During their video sessions, Harvey usually stands in his backyard, surrounded by trees. He demonstrates the movements slowly, checking in with Joni to see how she's feeling. Sometimes Joni's daughter, Hannah, joins. She runs track, and Harvey wants to make sure she doesn't have any lasting effects. Joni says part of what makes her feel better is just who he is. He's reassuring and intuitive. You got to feel the connection, watching me feel my energy, allow my energy and your energy connect. And he's just a a kind, caring human being who was taught at an early age to, to just give back to other people. That's kind of Harvey's personal philosophy. The greatest success in the world is being in the position to help someone else. Harvey grew up in a small town in Louisville, Mississippi. He says even though his family didn't have a lot, his mother and father still did what they could to help people in their community. And my mother would always, always told me that it's not about you, it's about helping others. That was the most important thing that she should be focusing on. Even though we was poor, that she said that there was always someone out there was worse off than you. Harvey says his mother's lesson is a big part of the reason he's doing what he's doing now. Someone asked me, what's the difference between helping a professional athlete 
prepare for the Super Bowl and what you're doing. And I told them that preparing a person for the Super Bowl, if they don't win the Super Bowl, they have next year to try to win again. But these people don't have that next year to worry about. They, they have to make sure this is done now to make sure that they're able to survive now because next year not promised to them. He wants to give people hope so they can keep fighting and get better. For The California Report, I'm Amanda Font. Last year, we brought you an audio diary from a young woman whose dad and grandmother both died from COVID-19. Family is just not replaceable. If I could get the coronavirus in place of my parents, I would. Many of you reached out to help Hannah Kim and her younger brother, Joe. Since we first aired their story, their mom also died from the virus. Hannah and Joe are part of an oral history workshop in L.A. called the Koreatown Storytelling Program. It helps high school journalists document stories in their community. The program began just as COVID hit last March, and students have been recording stories of the pandemic and bringing toilet paper and kimchi to elders who've been isolated and stuck at home. Now the young journalists are starting to shift their focus to reflect on the recent killings in Atlanta and the surge of anti-Asian violence here in California. Catherine Young-Mi Kim runs the program, and she brings us this commentary. Last summer, students in my workshop asked some elders in Koreatown about their experiences with racism in America. In this recording, 17-year-old Sharon Sung talks with 75-year-old Jong Park about being discriminated against at a grocery store in Bakersfield. Park said the cashier bagged groceries for all of the white customers, but not for her. She was frustrated that she couldn't stand up for herself because of the language barrier. And then, over the next few months, the anti-Asian violence started to surge. Slurs turned to acid attacks and face slashings. A fear seated long ago resurfaced into hypervigilance. Recently, I moved to Mount Washington. It's this bucolic enclave in Northeast LA. But then my new neighbor was outraged that we were hammering a nail in the hallway. He came over and screamed, go back to your country of origin. Ever since my husband and I have fretted about our physical safety, we've asked each other, do you think he has a gun? When Denny Kim, a 27-year-old U.S. Air Force veteran, was attacked in a hate crime in Koreatown, I called my son, who's about the same age. Watch your back, I told him. Since most of my students were born and raised in Koreatown, I worried about them too, especially after the Atlanta shootings where four of the victims were Korean women. Over Zoom last week, 16-year-old Jaden Kim told me she tried to hide being Asian in her own community. It is a little bit scarier to walk around in Koreatown. Um, I remember I was walking somewhere with my friend the other day, and then this guy called out to us, and then we started running because we didn't want him to see that um, we were Asian, and then he started like following us. That was kind of scary. As we were running, my friend was like, I don't want to get hate crime today. Like That was kind of, like we were joking. Jaden's words pierced me, how casually she considered being targeted. The use of hate crime as a verb, I don't want to get hate crime today, is how Koreatown teenagers have normalized the rise in violence against our community. 
Most of the youth in my program are teenage girls. We talk about how racialized sexualization is embroidered into our identities in America. Here's 17-year-old Abigail Un. There were two white guys that I met in a social setting, and when they saw me, they were like, oh my God, you're so cute, like an anime character. And we usually call this yellow fever when an individual is obsessed with Asian women, particularly. It made me feel so weird and uncomfortable because I felt like I was just being sexualized for the fact that I was Asian. And it just felt extremely dehumanizing to be only seen for how I look, not my personality, not my intellect, nothing else. It's just the fact that I was Asian. Can I ask when you guys first heard the term yellow fever, what grade were you in? I was in seventh grade, I think. I was like 12. Yeah, I think around like eighth grade for me, yeah. Yeah, middle school. So by the time these girls were in middle school, they were already aware of being fetishized. For this generation, these stereotypes are compounded by anime and hentai. So yeah. my generation didn't have anime girls. So what is uh-huh. that? Basically, it's just like hypersexualized cartoon characters. This is 17-year-old Kaylee Beck. Often they're like schoolgirls. They're our age, younger than us. They're like usually Asian. They're drawn with crazy proportions. But I know that that's also part of the problem, that that kind of stuff flies under the radar, but it's actually a symptom of something more systematic. When I think about the six Asian women who were murdered in Atlanta, what keeps replaying in my head is their last moments. A shaft of light in the late afternoon at a workplace where they didn't want to be. What was the outline for their aspirations? When they thought of their families, were they longing for them? Many of them were mothers, single mothers, grandmothers, immigrants who could have raised the young women in my program. Now, grief around their deaths is mobilizing these girls to resist anti-Asian stereotypes and violence. Through storytelling, these conversations are beginning to uproot the hate. Catherine Young-Mi Kim runs the storytelling program at the Koreatown Youth and Community Center in Los Angeles. Getting a COVID-19 shot can be really emotional. Some people even cry with relief. I know I did. For survivors of HIV, that sense of newfound freedom is something they've felt before. KQED science reporter Leslie McClurk brings us the story now of two gay men in San Francisco who are celebrating the second time a medical advancement has changed their lives. Even though Jonathan Salinas didn't live through the AIDS crisis, the virus still haunts his generation. When I was growing up, as a gay man, HIV should always be in the periphery or around the conversations of sex. About five years ago, Salinas learned about a daily pill called PrEP. The preventative medication is somewhat analogous to a vaccine for AIDS. As soon as I got on PrEP, that anxiety, that weight off of my shoulders, just, you know, it lifted almost immediately because I felt empowered. Now he works for the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, educating others about PrEP. As a healthcare worker, Salinas learned he qualified for a COVID-19 vaccine. He has been living in fear of the virus, especially for his family. It's a family of six people living in a two-bedroom home. That just terrified me because I know that none of them can take the time off of work. 
After his second shot, he felt a freedom similar to what he experienced after taking PrEP for the first time. I just felt so much hope. Now he can plan to visit his family. Months have passed since he last saw his parents and siblings, all of whom are essential workers in an agricultural community south of San Jose. Another San Francisco resident named Leo Herrera can relate. Because my dad is 65-year-old Mexican immigrant cashier. The first wave of death hit people like him. This year was the second time Herrera watched a virus rip through his community. COVID-19 has disproportionately hit Latinos and those who identify as LGBTQ. I'm a gay man and I'm 39, so I have a lot of viral trauma from the HIV pandemic. And I'm also a first-generation Mexican immigrant who grew up undocumented, so there's a lot of overlap. Between his experience of the two pandemics. Back in 2012, Herrera was dating a man who was HIV positive. That same year, PrEP, the daily pill to prevent HIV, hit the market. But just like the vaccine rollout today, access tilted towards affluent communities with good insurance. It took years for PrEP to be distributed widely to folks of color and folks without health care. And just like today, a lot of media focused on unknowns. Would the pill lead to toxicity, bone density issues, kidney problems? In the end, Herrera took a leap of faith. The first time I had sex without a condom with an HIV-positive person was a freedom and a loss of shame and anxiety that was phenomenal. Recently, he received his second COVID-19 shot. On his way to the vaccine site, he stopped for gas. A group of people were hanging out inside the station without masks. And I thought, oh man, I cannot wait for this to be the last time that I have to sort of focus on what everybody else is doing to take care of me. I can finally take that power back. Herrera is looking forward to the time when we're all vaccinated. And he's at a wedding reception or a bar. And without thinking, he hugs a stranger for the first time. And the hug is going to go on for a beat too long. And you're going to hold on to that stranger and you're both going to realize what that hug means. For Herrera, it'll mark his second victory against a deadly virus. For The California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. So many of the more than 50,000 Californians we've lost to COVID were essential workers or elders from vulnerable communities. My sister died um, giving food out to families. Um, we think that's how she got COVID. He's a really well-rounded person. Like, he wouldn't have uh, discriminated against any other religions or, you know, he, he trying to find the good in everything. As we continue to report on the disproportionate impact of this pandemic, we want to open it up to you. Has someone you love who is an essential worker or a member of a vulnerable community passed away from COVID-19 here in California? We'd love to hear their story. Visit kqed.org slash a year of COVID to honor them with an audio tribute on our show. Some of those essential workers are the people who've been bringing us our food during the pandemic. Not just the folks stocking the shelves at the grocery store, but also picking our crops in California's fields. The California Report's intern, Hector Arzate, tells us about a new song that honors them. I've seen plenty of disrespect for the knowledge of the land. It's my That's Dark Eyes from Mexican musician Lila Downs. Everybody 
She wrote this song to raise awareness about indigenous farm workers and food service workers from Oaxaca. Many of them work in the Central Valley and the Central Coast, and they've been hit hard by COVID-19. Proceeds from the song have been used to translate information about COVID testing and vaccines in indigenous languages like Zapoteco and Mixteco. No todo está perdido, estoy con mi gente. Trabajo con miedo, pero yo soy consciente. There's a part that says that not everything is lost, that you're with your people. And that is said in Spanish, so I, I definitely resonate with that. It is that we are in this together. Sarai Martinez is the executive director of the Binational Center for Development of Oaxacan Indigenous Communities based in Fresno. When you think of farm workers, you think of folks that speak Spanish, but you know, within them, there's the indigenous farm workers that have very different linguistic and cultural needs that we keep forgetting about. So I think the song really helps us to bring visibility to our work. I want it better, better than it was before. So I'm really hoping that uh, as we go through the pandemic, we reflect on that and really paid not only farm workers as heroes, but really as the respect and the dignity and that that translates into adequate policies that ensure that we have a living wage for farm workers and full labor rights at the workplace. Proceeds are also providing direct financial relief for essential workers. They can use the money to quarantine from work, support their kids through virtual schooling, or simply put food on the table. For the California Report, I'm Hector Arzate. Last week, we told you about losing a beloved colleague of ours, Penny Nelson. She was a longtime host and also a contributor here on the California Report. And she died after a battle with brain cancer. Always a source of joy and charm and humor. She had such empathy and grace, and she felt for everybody she spoke with. Those were our colleagues Brian Watt and Polly Stryker, both remembering Penny Nelson. She was always so curious about people and wanting to connect with them. I think you can really hear that in her stories. So, as a tribute, we thought we'd bring you a story she did for the California Report a couple years ago. Arturo Torres has a family and a home in Fresno, but he works in the Bay Area where he can earn more money. I'm a painter. The salary on the Central Valley for a journeyman is $18 an hour. Here is $10 or $15 more. It's, it's, it's much better. During the work week, Torres tried renting a room with other workers, but he was paying more than he could afford just for a spot on the floor to sleep. His next approach was more successful. He bought a motorhome. His is a nice RV that he parks on the street. This is a 1995 motorhome. When buy this home, I pay $10,000. My monthly payment is $240. Can you describe your beautiful home, because it is quite nice. This, this uh, truck or motor home is uh, for six people. It's three beds. Uh, this motor home have a microwave for cooking stuff, a shower. And how do you get your power? Right now my power is off because my generator is empty of gas. 
for take a shower, I need a bucket, five gallons. Uh, I take the hot water for my job. You're very tidy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm okay here. Okay, nuts and bolts here. Power. Beyond the generator, his RV has a camping-style setup with propane and battery-operated lights and the like. What about sewage? Well, believe it or not, this is not a challenge. There are RV so-called dump stations all over the place, and for $25, he can dump his RV's load right up the road. Following the rules, though, that is essential when it comes to curbside living. The police don't give you a hard time as long as you keep everything clean. <laughs> Everything's good. Yeah, yeah, always. I need to be a, a good citizenship with no trash, no nothing. On a mile stretch of road where Arturo Torres parks his RV, there are often 30 or more camper vans lined up nose to nose. And this is not unique to Palo Alto. All over the state, communities are wrestling with the situation as people struggle to find affordable housing. And the rules for overnight parking are as varied as the communities themselves. In Palo Alto, the main rule Torres must contend with is moving his RV every 72 hours. Hours, and when asked if he abides by that, he nods. I know the law on each city. I need parking only three days. I have my paper with my information, name, and cell phone number for any question about my truck. It's okay. Later that week, Penny followed Torres as he left his job as a painter on the Stanford campus and headed home to his family in Fresno on a Friday afternoon. Sometimes he comes home in the midnight, and I really miss him. It's nearly 7 p.m. when Torres arrives back home in Fresno, where his wife Gloria waits for him with the kids. Vita, a boisterous second grader, and Judah, her shy five-year-old little brother, tackle their dad as he comes in the door. Puppy! Puppy! Welcome to my house. She was beautiful. Yeah, thank you. She's my wife. Look at him, so dirty. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's paint covered. Yeah. That's exactly. not dirt, that's yeah, paint. Yeah. Like custom. Yeah. It's like custom paint. Go ahead, let me take a shower. After living in the tight quarters of his chilly RV for the week, he's back in his warm home. The difference between his RV on the street near Stanford and the family home in Fresno is stark. This community is teeming with children playing outside, tag, football, jump rope. Gloria sits at the kitchen table as her husband comes over and gives her a kiss. As Torres unwinds, Gloria tells me of her reaction when he first showed her his new home on wheels. Super ugly and dirty RV. And I said, <laughs> what? It, I was so mad, so mad. But when I went to there in Palo Alto and I see another RVs, I realized and I said, wow. Now, now Penny, at that time I feel so bad. You know what, I'm so sorry. <laughs> But your but your wife and your kids are saying how much they miss you during the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, me too. Honestly, I I don't like to be alone here. We feel obligated to move for work. In the middle of the week, he told me, you know what, I miss you. I'm starting to miss you a lot. Okay, just endure, endure a couple of days. <laughs> With that, I head out and leave the family to their weekend together. For the California Report, I'm Penny Nelson in Fresno. We love and miss you, Penny, and you will always be a part of the California Report. 
We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon. Amanda Font is our director. Brendan Willard and Seal Muller are engineers, and our team also includes Julia McAvoy, Holly Stryker, and Hector Arzate. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for taking the time to listen. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi there. I'm Randa Fatah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.